The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Previously on this program, we talked about the tremendous advantages of man's best friend, dogs, in contemporary conservation. As roles for dogs increase in the field, it turns out dogs are becoming wildlife and conservation's best friend, too. Today, my guests are Megan Parkin, Parker, I'm sorry, founder of Working Dogs for Conservation, and I welcome back Pete Copolillo. Uh, Working Dog for Conservation's Executive Director. I met up with Pete and Megan at this year's Jackson Hole Fest Festival and Elephant Summit, and with them was Pippin. Pepin, Pippin, Pepper, Pippin. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Does a dog, a working dog, respond to his name? But uh, with them was Pepin. I got it. And I hope Mer Meg will uh, share a little of the, the story of how uh, Working Dogs gets their dogs. Uh, Pete covered a little bit of that last time, but let's get into it more from Megan's side and how she came to found this organization. So, um, Missoula, Montana, you're in Missoula, right? And uh, Or somewhere around there. So, anyway, let's move on. Welcome back, Pete, and welcome, Megan. Thanks, Emily. Thanks. Thank you. It's really great to have you here. Um, sometimes this uh, the intro to the show just starts getting fun and I'm so excited about talking to you guys today and what Pepin was doing and what your other dogs do. So, Meg, let's go to you for a little bit. And uh, you're the founder of, and the website I would like our listeners to tune into is wd4c.org, Working Dogs for Conservation. How did you start this? Well, I'm a co-founder of the organization. Four of us uh, started the organization, we became a non-profit in the year 2000. So we've been around for a while. Um, we're all conservation biologists who, uh, as scientists, recognize the need for better data and, and more data on endangered species. And we also all had a background uh, working with training dogs. And so we kind of married those interests and started working together to use the amazing ability that dogs have to smell their olfactory abilities to get better data in a non-invasive way, meaning 
Rather than putting out a radio collar on an animal, maybe we can get good information from training a dog to find scat and then get genetic, diet, hormone, and other information from a source from an animal without having to harass it. This is so cool. So, listeners, do tune in to our previous episode with Pete Copolillo, and we'll find a lot of some of what Megan was talking about, but we're going to get back into that. But let's take this back just a little notch, Megan. You're a co-founder. You have three women, other amazing women, that you all decided to start this. But how did you go from training dogs, and what kind of training were you doing, to collaborating and connecting with, um, you know, police and narcotics and sniffer dogs, that kind of, through the university and through um, police? How did that connection come around? Because that's a different kind of... What kind of training did you do first, and what did you have to do to, to marry these? Um, I actually have been training dogs my whole, my whole life. I trained a lot of uh, obedience dogs when I was a kid, and some of my co-founders were training in obedience and working with guide dogs for the blind and different ways of working with dogs. And it all lends itself to just understanding how dogs work and how to train them and work with them. Um, I started working with a, a wonderful dog trainer who trains narcotic detection dogs for the state of Washington. And uh, we, together, we kind of explored if dogs could be trained to find scats in just the same way that they're used to find drugs, except in the field rather than in a prison or a school or another, you know, sort of police situation. Well, and also, I, I would think immediately a rather cleaner environment, not so many things of uh, interest to a dog, maybe. Yeah, well, we, we work in really challenging situations because we take our dogs to the field. We work off-leash, and there are every imaginable distraction from livestock to squirrels. Um, but one of the things that... that separates a working dog from a pet dog is their their ability to focus on work regardless of the number of distractions. And so a dog that otherwise might want to chase something can actually just stay focused on the job of searching for bear scat or black-footed ferrets or, um, you know, cheetah sign. And so the beautiful thing about these dogs is their ability to throw themselves into their work and focus completely. And you bring up a good point because at Jackson, Pepin did, a, you and Pepin did um, a couple of fabulous presentations. And there was a grizzly bear on a moose kill right off the overlook there. And you guys hid some ivory amongst 900 delegates plus a lot of tourists from all over the world outdoors in shrubbery in fall. And Pepin stayed on focus. So... Um, it was an amazing thing to watch, and please go to the website, Working Dogs for Conservation, because they do have some, uh, well, the background stories on the dogs and the staff, Megan and Pete, and um, there's some great images, and I think there's some video there, too. But let's take this back to um, the difference between, you know, the pet and the working dog. What makes a good working dog versus a pet? Well, we, we select our dogs based on their behaviors rather than their breed. And we, we take uh, the majority of our dogs are, are rescue dogs from shelters or rescue organizations, meaning 
they're either a career change dog, possibly from like a, a guide dog for the blind who has just too much energy and wouldn't make the right kind of guide dog, but has a real interest in working. Or some dog that's made a terrible pet for someone who wanted a calm, easy dog to live with when these dogs have a tremendous amount of energy and a tremendous amount of love for a particular toy. So we our dogs are toy-obsessed, meaning that they really... Um, the toy is the most meaningful thing to them, and engaging with their handler in a in a in a bout of of play is their reward for working so hard. But this usually shows up if someone's got a pet dog that's really high energy, and the dog might say dig through a couch or jump through a window to get a toy, and that's just a hard pet to have. These dogs have an amazing level of focus, but. As a trainer, you can really harness that energy and desire for a toy into really complex work situations and make a very stable working dog. Well, tell us at this point a little bit about Evan's story. Um, you had ta- you'd done a couple of really fabulous presentations with Pepin and Pete. Um, sorry to leave you out there, Pete, at Jackson, at this year's Jackson Festival. And um, I think your phrase was, uh, it was a bad dog. So, and it got a lot of, uh, you know, titters and laughter from the audience, but it was a really important point that you were making that, as you were just saying, you know, somebody, this might be a bad pet, and so they'd say it's a bad dog, but tell us how Pepin turned around. Well, um, I've had Pepin since he was a puppy, and he was, I mean, even though I work with detection dogs, I mean, he was more than a handful. So they, our dogs tend to need a lot of boundaries. They need a lot of structure in their lives to live with. We, we live with our personal working dogs in our homes, and so their family and their working dogs. But these are dogs that need a lot of... Um, need a lot of exercise, need a lot of obedience work to keep their minds occupied, and need to be worked uh, for their whole life so that they can stay mentally occupied. And, uh, you know, if, if they don't have that, they tend to be destructive or neurotic or um, exhibit behaviors that people just don't want to live with. So this is where the case of a neurotic dog makes a really, really focused conservation tool. Can well, if I could just interject one little thing, Meg's being, Meg's being humble about Pepin. Pepin's an extraordinary dog because he's a he's a Belgian Malinois, and whenever we do demonstrations, a lot of police and military people come out to see it because th- th- that's a popular breed with with them, and they expect a big, mean, scary dog. And Pepin is so incredibly well socialized that, as you saw in Jackson, he loves to be touched and have people around him and everything. And and that was a huge uh, undertaking that that you know Meg did not only because she was raising him with a child, but also because he's an ambassador. So he goes out in the world and does all these things, and it takes a huge amount of, of, of work and socialization and training to, to have a dog um, who's that sort of high-powered and that driven, who's also enjoys having people around and puts up with all the crazy things that, that Pepin does. So he's really, um, he's really one in, you know, one in, uh, maybe not one in a million, maybe one in 10,000, one in 100,000, something like that. He's a special guy. He, he truly is extraordinary. And Pete, I'm so glad you, you stepped up because I was going to say the same thing. 
Pepin and Megan deserve a whole lot more. And I know it's hard to talk about yourself and how cool you are, but you two are very cool people, and Pepin is an amazing dog. As I said, there were 900 people there, plus a lot of foreign tourists, and before the demonstration, we were all gathered out there. People were having cocktail hour, and Pepin was playing with people. People would come up and say, oh, can I pet him? And you're saying, yeah, 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 but when he goes to work, he goes to work. Tell us a little... Um, either Pete or Megan, that moment of change from when Pepin or the working dog goes from the family situation, you know, being raised with a child, and to work. There were a couple of tools and some signals that you used that were very specific. And then it becomes, it's not about fun now, we are working. Tell us about that, because that's an amazing moment to watch. You know, it... it it's a, it is a really, it's a cool moment when you work with a dog um, and help it understand that it has um, this other purpose. So a lot of our dogs come out of shelters and very chaotic backgrounds, maybe, you know, six or seven different homes where it didn't work out. So they have, a, you know, a, a background of not really having a relationship with a person or a trusting living situation and getting it great great food, great vet care, and spending the time helping it understand that it, it gets to search for something, which it, you know, dogs tend to love to do, and then it gets their toy. And there's a point where very early on they they understand that they get to do this incredible thing with you as a handler and a trainer. And you gather them up. This is the same with, with Pepin. When, he, when you... We work our dogs in vests. So for Pepin, putting a vest on means he knows he's going to work. But there's also, it's just the sort of uh, giving him a verbal cue saying, let's go to work. He knows he's going to work. He makes eye contact. Most of these dogs make eye contact and just completely quiver with anticipation of getting to do the search work. They love searching. They love their work. And they have this relationship with their handler that allows them to work as a team and share this information. So the dog's using its nose, the handler's using its eyes, and they're working together to find something, and the handler gets to reward the dog. And so the whole world just kind of slows down in that moment for the dog of anticipating getting to go to work, and then it speeds up to do its work with complete focus. But it's um, it really is something that that's one of the things we look for in these dogs, these really high-speed dogs. They have to also have that high focus because it's the only way they can work hour after hour, day after day, and year after year and love their job and just do such an amazing um, level of professional work. It is incredible. And, it, and I took some video footage. It's not super great quality considering we were at a film festival. And I will put that together and make it available on our host page here host page here at our wild world or once again go to wd the number 4c.org and check out working dogs for conservation and check out some of the stories on these dogs so um it is an amazing relationship it's it's a it's something you know our listeners can take away that you know your dog and going for a walk can be an incredible moment in both of your lives that that walk could become, as you're talking about, the focus and the work for the dog. So it really is a, a relationship and it, um, a, a well-known 
psychologist friend of mine had said, you know, each of us are responsible for 100% of our half of the relationship. And I'd say that's really true, and if not more so, in a working dog for conservation. So we've got uh, a couple minutes here. Um, once again, I'd like you to go back and listen to Pete's conversation because he went into some interesting things. But where we're going to head into is the huge difference that these hyper super play drive dogs that get very focused what they are doing in the field we started out uh, in the beginning that these dogs go to the field so um, why don't we do this why don't we go ahead and cut to a break now and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about just what that field is because it is a long way from Montana so stick with us my guests are Megan Parker and Pete Copalillo and by proxy all the working dogs for conservation and stick with us. We'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Do you love to travel? Now, that's a silly question, isn't it? Who doesn't love to travel? Join Lindsay T. Boyd, a.k.a. the Dreamweaver, for Travel Time. A professional travel agent, Lindsay will spotlight the world of travel, from maps and other travel tools to make your trips easier, to your rights as a passenger, to different aspects of travel, such as sports, faith, or experiential vacations. Travel Time with Lindsay T. Boyd, Dreamweaver, airs live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back to Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss and my guests Megan Parker and Pete Copalillo with Working Dogs for Conservation. So the first part of the show we talked a little bit about how the organization was founded 
and about the dogs themselves, the kinds of dogs that make good, and here's the operative word, conservation field dogs. So, uh, Megan, you had mentioned you take these dogs to the field, so they're trained in the United States, but they are traveling dogs. So what is the field, the scope? Where do you, where do you, where do you all work? You know, we have been lucky enough to work in a lot of different uh, environments with amazing partners uh, from around the world. Uh, we started out working a lot in the Rocky Mountains, and we continue to work uh, frequently in California on endangered species. But we have worked everywhere from Argentina to a lot of countries in Africa. And China, uh, Vietnam, we'll be heading to Kyrgyzstan, uh, geez, uh, Europe. We, we've been able to um, take our dogs to Myanmar to, to help look for you know, wild elephants. And it, there's just, it has been no place we've gone as difficult as it has been for us to get there that the dogs haven't uh, done a great job. This is amazing. I'm not. Oh, I'm aware of a few other working dog conservation working dogs. Um, Sam Wasser has a team, but his are a little more specific. Your dogs are trained on a wide variety of scents, and so when you say we work in all these places, what is that work? How does that work happen? I mean, there's there's training that these dogs go to that you're the, to detect specific scents. Let's talk about this a little bit because this is amazing what they can do because you talked about less invasive, less impact, and these dogs are flexible and movable. And so, of course, it keeps conservation costs down in some ways. Let's talk about what that work is. Well, I, you know, it's, it's such a wide variety of, of conservation targets that our dogs do. And um, many of our dogs, our veteran dogs, are trained on upwards of 20 different target odors from finding scat to finding plants. Some of them find live animals. Some of them find, you know, wildlife contraband. And our filter is just that whatever project we work on has high conservation value. So dogs might be trained to find ivory. And the next project they work on, they're trained to find elephant dung or um, fish or... Um, an invasive plant that needs to be eradicated. So um, one dog can learn a, a wide variety of um, target odors, different species, and work in many different kinds of habitats. Well, this is amazing. So when you go to work with a dog, do you have just one dog? And then, so the dog you said earlier was off-leash. So I know they're focused. We understand they're focused and they're working and this is what they're geared to do is find the thing they've been tasked to find. But how does that uh, work in a large landscape? Like tr tracking scat or finding an invasive plant? Well, it, 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 it do, every project's different and often um, a target like a plant or a snail or an insect that's very small and may have very little odor that broadcasts widely. The dog may work in a very detailed, close range. Something like cheetah scat or lion or African wild dog scat in an open area, the dog may range 20 to 50 meters from the handler, and you might do transects you know, that are 12, 
kilometers long. So sometimes you work in a very small area doing a very thorough search. And some of that is just how important is it that you find absolutely everything there or how important is it that you just sample this landscape? So we work very closely with our partners to make sure that the questions they need answered are um, we take that into consideration when we plan how we will work in the field and how the dog will um, find the target based on what the the needs and risks and you know situation is. Well, that's an interesting phrase. You know, the questions that need answers from your partners and why they have called you in. Give us an example. Well, you know, often uh, we're a bit of a last resort when they when they've tried every other method. From radio collars to camera traps to hair snags, and they haven't had any good results, they'll say, Well, let's just bring the dogs in. So sometimes we're a bit of a last resort, um, and that sometimes we have amazing results, or sometimes, well, the species is gone from this area and we can't find anything either. But it's, um, it's often in a case where we're traveling overseas. It's, it's a highly endangered species, like a cross-river gorilla, the most endangered gorilla in the world. We went to Cameroon to do surveys for it because camera traps don't work and um, radio collars aren't appropriate. So we're in there to see what we can find for genetic and disease information on a very remote gorilla species on the border of Cameroon and Nigeria. And... Um, you know, we try to apply really good science to everything we do. What's the sampling? How can we get the best genetic information and get the most robust answer for the team that we're working with? So um, you had said, oh, I just I had a senior moment there, but you had said an interesting thing in that um, the wide variety of samplings and 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 what the dogs are tracking and answering the questions. So. Um, in tracking an endangered species, so okay, let's take this back. Why are the dogs called in last? Wouldn't it, everything you've just told me and everything you've said, and in terms of conservation costs and budgets and all of that thing, why wouldn't, why wouldn't dogs be brought in first? <laughs> well, you know, even though we've been doing this for quite a while, it's still a fairly novel technique. And many managers and decision makers aren't ready to do something as um, maybe as novel as using detection dogs to get information when there are other more traditional methods that can be used. And sometimes it's, you know, to fly a team over from the U.S., a dog and, and handler is just a very expensive thing. So it is a bit of a last resort. So there's there's lots of different reasons. But most typically, I think, and, and tell me what you think, Pete, if it, it's just sometimes it's just not as a traditional and accepted a method. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that, that um, you know, it, it it's not it's not included in um, in a lot of of, of conservation or wildlife uh, biology you know training courses these days and so a lot of it's not the first thing that people think of and you know the truth is that that we're still figuring out lots of new things that, that these dogs can do um, you know the uh, some of the, the 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 work Meg's doing right now developing methods for and figuring out whether 
Um, dogs can identify fish to species in a in a stream. Um, that's new, and nobody you know nobody uh, knew whether that was possible. And now that we've demonstrated that it is possible, now we've got to figure out you know under what circumstances is it most reliable, and how can we use it. And one of the amazing things I I love about this job is that you know people come to us with crazy ideas and say. Would it be possible to, to use a dog for, for, you know, this or that? And a lot of times it's completely out of left field. And so it's, um, it's fun. And, you know, over and over again, we throw crazy tasks at them and, um, and they keep doing them. So, um, so who knows, you know, where it'll lead. But I think that's, that's partly why is there are all sorts of new, new applications um, uh, to, to, you know, things to ask dogs to do. Well, we've been using dogs as, you know, bomb-sniffing dogs for a long time. There's so much research and, and good data and published data out there about dogs sniffing out disease in people, cancer, and, you know, malignancies. So um, I, I understand you're saying it's novel uh, in a way, but I think it's novel to old-fashioned conservation mentality. And isn't that what the Jackson Summit was really all about was bringing all these new ideas together to the people that are out there doing it and the decision makers, there were a lot of decision makers there, uh, to say, you know, it, the old models aren't working or they're not working as well as we need them to now and add in these new ideas. Why not give it a shot? Yeah, yeah, that's really true. And and in fact, um, and pardon me for jumping in, but, uh, you know, Meg and I just came back from uh, Johannesburg and Nairobi, and we where where we um, co-convened two working dog summits for Africa, and and the upshot of it was um, that this field is now big enough and mature enough that we do have best practices. We can say um, with greater amount of certainty what makes things um, what makes projects uh, successful. You know what what dogs need um, to be effective and and you know to keep keep them healthy and and um, and working effectively. And that's not to say we figured it all out. There's a there's a lot left to do. Um, and the, you know there we're we're always learning. But you're right. It is we we we've got a lot more. It, it, you know these things are worked out, and and we really do need to help uh, get the word out to both policymakers and managers and, and donors and others um, to, to know what an effective tool it is because, um, you know, a, a lot of times people will default to what they know best or what somebody else did last rather than what might be the most effective. And there are a lot of contexts where dogs can be having a really big impact um, and, you know, far wider than they are right now um, and, and, um, and, 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 you know, being being really helpful. So you're right. We, we we do know quite a bit, and we need to get and we need to continue to get the word out. So um, doing doing stuff like this and talking to you and helping you uh, having you help us uh, reach out to people is a, is a huge help. Um, and I think in ten years we're going to see um, dogs. You know, dogs will be uh, as common as the camera trap or you know um, uh, you know any other any other sort of method. Um, yeah, I would like that, to see that, that in, use. in two years. I, you know, <laughs> with, with what's going on and the, the tipping points and collapsing points that we're reaching right now, that's not to say give up hope. There is a lot of hope, and working dogs in the field is one of them. But I would like to, I would like to see the conservation world ramp up 
uh, and get its act together a bit more so your working summits in Africa is incredible. So let's spend um, a couple minutes there. What is the response to, well, there's the people who are thinking out of the box, asking you to be there, or your willingness to present. What is their response in, let's say, emerging worlds where conservation models have been going on for a long time? What is their reaction uh, to bringing in dogs, and then when they see the dogs work? Megan? Hey, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. go ahead, Megan. Well, um, they, where, we, where we've worked and brought dogs into Africa and started programs for wildlife contraband um, detection and, and tracking, people are thrilled. It's they They soon realize that these dogs are incredible colleagues and can give them information that they couldn't possibly get on their own in in much faster, easier ways, like doing vehicle searches, going in or out of a national park, looking for guns and ammunition if they're entering a protected area or leaving to detect ivory, rhino, bushmeat, illegal lumber. And that's true across Africa. More and more countries, uh, governments and organizations are using dogs for that kind of work, as well as for tracking um, specifically rhino poaching, um, you know, rhino poachers. And um, because they work so well, people are seeing results, and, and it's, it's, it's easy to become an advocate when you just see a dog do something that it would take humans, if possible, a very long time to do, like searching a bus for, for bushmeat or ivory. <clears throat> so the, the, I think the response is overwhelmingly positive to use dogs, and what we went to Africa to do is to bring together practitioners, um, managers, decision makers, and have a workshop where we presented the best science on training and on veterinary practices. So people can actually work with their dogs and keep their dogs happy and healthy and working at a higher level than they have been able to without really good information. And so... Everything is incredibly transparent. Um, trainers and veterinarians working really openly, sharing techniques and advice and ongoing support and, ha- and also allowing and helping all of these projects network among themselves to share expertise and resources. So it was a, it was a huge success, and we feel really lucky to have been a part of both the African working dog community but also... Um, lucky to be able to bring better information and um and 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 experts and good um good science to the table to help everybody work a little bit better so this brings up two questions to mind i'm aware of um uh, places over in namibia and botswana Mm -hmm. that are using uh dogs a for cheetah protection livestock protection against life protecting livestock against cheetah which is a slightly different um, uh, bailiwick, but they're not necessarily sniffer detection dogs. But there are working dogs over there in Namibia and Botswana. Have you been over there? And do you find that there are more people willing to take this up um, in terms of a, a new model for conservation and that the expense of the training and the relationship and building these relationships is is worthwhile for them? Are they finding it it worthwhile? Or did you just answer that question? I absolutely they're finding it worthwhile. I think um, 
a place even like it, Kruger National Park in South Africa has most of the world's remaining rhinos. It's the size of Israel. And most of its, um, and it has a tremendous poaching problem. And But most of the successful finds in terms of poachers um, are due to dogs. 85% of their success rate is due to their canine unit. And so they've got the numbers to show that this really works. Um, livestock guardian dogs is a is a is a different discipline, and yeah, there's there's programs in South Africa, Namibia, and Botswana working on livestock guardian to reduce predator conflict. Um, this is a different discipline, both uh, tracking and detection dogs for law enforcement um, for wildlife contraband. You know, use different kinds of dogs, different kind of training, but are in the same world, obviously. But it's still an amazing aspect of. What we have a lot of on this planet are dogs that need homes and that need work, things to do. So you'd uh, mentioned an interesting uh, tracking poachers. So we know through Sam Wasser and uh, Pete's previous episode that a lot of the tracking and the, the detection is done after the fact. They found the ivory or they found the horn. Our working dogs and this type of work and what your dogs are doing, are they being a little more proactive and preemptive in finding um, before the animals are killed? Absolutely, and I think um, training these conservation dogs to look for guns and ammunition is a huge part of that because you take guns out of the system and, um, you know, one gun can be used by multiple poachers. Very few people um, can afford a gun or ammunition, so you get out of the system before it's used, and it, it does save lives. That's amazing. We're going to have to take a a short break here. And when we come back, Pete, you had an interesting story you both shared with us at Jackson about just how detailed a search got. So stick with us. My guests are Megan Parker and Pete Copalillo with Working Dogs for Conservation. We'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back, Our Wild World and Working Dogs for Conservation. So um, right before the the break, we were talking about where some of the dogs are going and what they're doing and the relationships that are are being had and connecting with uh, other organizations that are looking for this kind of new tool in the conservation toolbox. And at Jackson and uh, some other presentations, you had uh, gotten into a very specific detailed search that uh, I think it was Pepin or another dog, correct me if I'm wrong, and uh, of just how just how tiny and how big the search area was by comparison to how tiny the target item was. Tell us that story, Pete. Sure. Sure. Well, actually, it was it was Ruger. Um, who uh, has a has an interesting backstory himself, which I'll I'll let Meg uh, share. But um, Ruger, it was one of his first searches in Zambia. He works uh, with uh, in in partnership with the South Luangwa Conservation Society and Zawa, the Zambia Wildlife Authority. Um, so they run a joint um, program, and it was one of Ruger's first days out, and they were on a roadblock, and uh, up to the roadblock. Uh, came um, a, a, a little, you know, minivan, heavily overloaded, um, as is is common there in in Africa, and um, it was the kind of, of vehicle that normally would have taken so long to search that that um, it would often be just waved through uh, a roadblock because to unload all the people and the luggage and and everything would have taken. Um, too long and the scouts wouldn't have have, uh, either had time or the patience of the drivers and the passengers and everybody to do it. Um, But Ruger uh, searched the vehicle um, around, you know, the outside of the vehicle and alerted at the back of the vehicle and um, they did a visual, quick visual inspection and and didn't see anything. So they unloaded uh, the, the Packages, you know, the the luggage and, and things on the back that were that were on the back of the vehicle, and laid them out. And he alerted on a specific suitcase. So they looked in the suitcase and they didn't find anything in that either. And um, <clears throat> he was insistent. And um, thanks to Meg, that the scouts were well trained and they knew to trust his nose. And so they searched that uh, suitcase more closely. And inside the suitcase, inside of a plastic bag inside of a matchbox <laughs> was a single primer cap. And a primer cap is used to ignite uh, a muzzleloader, um, which is the weapon of choice for, for uh, poaching uh, elephants in, in Zambia. So this, this person was carrying, with, and it's illegal to have, um, to have that. And so this person was carrying an illegal, just a single, um, a single cap. It's about the size of a, of, of a um, about the size of your, your pinky uh, nail. Um, that ignites a, a muzzleloader, and he found it. And the best part about the whole thing was that everybody who was on that bus was standing at the side of the road, and they saw this search take place. And so now, um, 
uh, the, the scouts from the South Luongo Conservation Society can go into a village where the, where the dogs have never been, and people who've never seen these dogs will say, is that Ruger? <laughs> uh, because his reputation is, has gone far and wide, which is, which is fabulous because it has great deterrence value. So it was one of those moments where everybody realized, hey, there really is something to this, and this guy, this dog can, um, can, can do things and make things possible that weren't otherwise possible beforehand. And, you know, we see the same thing up in Alberta when they're searching uh, boats for zebra and quagga mussels. You know, they're, they're able to search so much more quickly and more efficiently that they can do every single vehicle as opposed to having to pick and choose. So um, they open a lot of doors for us and, and, um, and, and uh, make things possible that weren't otherwise. And it's a whole new meaning to the phrase bush telegraph, doesn't it? Or <laughs> that right. your reputation precedes you. That is so cool. Um, to be able to go into a place uh, that you've never been before, whether it be Africa or Canada or Myanmar, and um, that word of nose, so to speak, has spread that you're, you're, you said it kind of offhandedly, but it is a huge deterrence factor. And that is one of the major aspects of fighting wildlife crime, finding invasive species, you know, trying to do trafficking and poaching and wildlife crime prevention and disease prevention, which is what these dogs are so amazing at. So um, we've got some time here. Why don't you share some stories? Your dogs and your organization has um, found scores of targets in 11 countries and 18 U.S. states. And that's just since we last spoke. So um, when we last spoke, it was about a year or so ago. Um, what are some of the new exciting things that your team is involved in and um, that personally excites you? And, you know, the, I think some of the, the dogs are being trained. I think you're taking on some more scents. And um, who are some of the new exciting collaborations? How, how is this going? Well, it's. I, I think we're now. I, we should probably update the website. I think we're up to 15 countries now, um, and and uh, Wicket. She is. Uh, I think she's the, the 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 leader now. I think she did her 30th um, scent now this year that she's she's trained on. So, um, you know, it continues to expand, and and you know, the truth is that um, that uh, that wildlife trafficking is such a big and pervasive. Uh, threat um, that you know. I'm careful to point out to people all the time that uh, that it's wonderful that we all know about elephants and rhinos, um, and that the fact that they're trafficked. But you know, they are just two among you know hundreds of species that that are regularly trafficked, and so. Um, uh, we are, uh, you, you know, we're going to be doing this work for a very long time. And what's really great to see is that there's huge interest in, in the work. So from the, from the summits in, in, um, in Africa, we had over 120 participants um, from 13 different countries. Um, and that was, that was from NGOs, um, but also, you know, really importantly, and, and, and what I was really excited about, we had wildlife authorities, we had customs authorities, we had police, um, and and you know everybody is recognizing the the how pervasive wildlife trafficking is, um, and how broadly we have to to address it as a as a threat, um, and you know I think it, it it will we will need to to have an effort on par with the way we deal with narcotics and and explosives and things like that, so you know we're a small organization and we do 
almost all of our work, probably 85, 90% of our work is in partnership with uh, other organizations and authorities. Um, and so we're always looking for, um, for solid partners on the ground who are willing to make a 10-year commitment, um, you know, to, to uh, put a dog team out and, and, uh, and work together. And, and so it's, it's a great opportunity to, to you know, to have a, a uh, to be able to speak to as many people as, 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 as you're able to um, through the podcast um, and, uh, and, and to, to, to look at where the, you know, the opportunities for dogs to have big impacts are. So well, I, have uh, a, I have a really good connection for you, and I'll give Tim Snow and his organization, uh, Wildlife uh, Conflict and po- Wildlife Conflict Poisoning and Prevention. They've been working oh. on trying to get some dogs into the field, and they're in from South Africa up to Namibia. And part of the biggest issue they face is, A, the collapsing of the vulture population due to poisonings uh, by cartels and large poaching gangs to come in and, you know, kill as many animals as possible, usually elephant and rhino, which is really picking up over there compared to, we hear a lot about East Africa, but we're not in South Africa, but we're not hearing how big it's going and spreading in terms of poisons and uh, in Namibia and Botswana. So can the dogs sniff out poisons like uh, furocarban and, and some of these others that are sold as pesticides? Uh, yeah, yeah they, they, they can. And actually, <clears throat> there's an organization in Spain that we work with that does exclusively poison detection dogs because it has such a big, big impact, illegal poisonings on wildlife. So. Yeah, they can. Um, it takes special training to make sure that you keep your dog safe and you handle um, the poisons safely. But yes, it's because people are poisoning carcasses to get rid of vultures so that vultures are not a visual sign of, a, of, of an elephant carcass. Um, it's, it's, you know, vultures are in decline, obviously, across Asia and Africa. And it's a, it's a, it's a very serious conservation issue. So um, we've got you know, like maybe five, seven minutes left here. I'm looking at your website, and it's a fabulous website. Once again, that's WD, as in dog, for the number C.org. And uh, it's an amazing website. There's fabulous images here, great stories of the dogs. And you've been telling us that you're looking for, you know, to increase your partners and reach out. So anybody out there listening around the world, that uh, is interested in connecting and with working. So we uh, had a little breakup in our call there, and where we were at was how can our listeners, we have a global audience of 150,000 people and growing in every country across the globe. How can we help working dogs for conservation? Well, thank you for asking that question, Ellie. Um, that's, that's, uh, it's a big help because, like I said, we are a small organization and, uh, and we don't spend a lot on marketing or, or fundraising or a lot of those other things. So um, obviously one way that people can help is, is to donate. Um, you know, individual donations allow us to do the work that, that we um, see as important um, and has a conservation impact, not just where uh, there's funding for it. So that's a huge help. Um, so how do it's donations, also uh, helpful how for, do donations, uh, I'm, so, I'm going to interrupt here. How do oh, your donations work? If, if somebody oh. is, 
is inclined, it's the giving season, is inclined to give, what does the money go to? Well, the money, uh, all of our, all of our uh, dogs uh, live with their handlers, and, and it, it, um, we, we look after them 365 days a year, even though they may only be in the field um, for uh, you know, maybe 100 or some of them 150 days a year. That's a lot. Um, it also, uh, you know, these are working dogs. They have a lot of uh, um, requirements in terms of both high-quality food but veterinary care um, to make sure that they're, you know, they don't tear themselves up um, and things like that. Um, and of course, we have to equip them and keep them um, uh, cool in the field and and uh, things like that. So, it's um, you know, dogs are are very efficient and they can save you a lot of money. But you know, it's not free to keep a dog and a, and their handler uh, working and and moving around and doing all the, the important things that they do. So so that's a big help. And um, it's easy to donate through our through our website. Um, and for people who shop online and do things like that, um, there's a neat program that Amazon does called smile.amazon.com. And somebody can just designate Working Dogs for Conservation as a charity that they would like to support. And then when they go shopping for uh, at the holiday season, um, uh, a, a small percentage of their um, uh, their purchase goes to, to support the organization. Um, and there's another yeah. online shopping, iGive. And if you're not yep. signed up for that, and iGive has thousands of stores. Wild Eyes is a charity listed, so you can always choose Wild Eyes and uh, Working Dogs for Conservation. So as you're doing all yep. your online shopping, it doesn't cost you any more, folks, of what you're already spending. As Pete just said, um, through these thousands of stores, they each give a various percentage of their um, their, their proceeds to the charity you've chosen. So it's worthwhile perusing through some of these uh, shopping sites, the vendors, because they some give quite a good percentage, where some like um, Amazon give a smaller percentage. But um, So it's fun to go shopping. It takes a little more time. It takes maybe a minute to set up, but it's worthwhile because you can make such a huge difference to a small organization, public charity, like Working Dogs for Conservation. And as Pete just said, amazing things can happen. So we've got a couple minutes left here. What would be your takeaway for our listeners today? Meg, you want to you take a crack? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, I guess the, the biggest message I have <laughs> is... Um, that there, you know, that there are amazing ways to do conservation, and um, we we love what we do because our dogs love what they do, and they do an amazing job from law enforcement stopping um, the poaching trade in Africa to we'll soon be in in Vietnam and Asia having dogs at the ports to check for incoming shipping containers. Um, we do a lot of work on the ground looking for information for endangered species and helping eradicate invasive species. And we just have not asked dogs to do anything that they haven't excelled. So we have the privilege of working with these amazing partners, our dogs. But we do we do need help in keeping this going because we're a small organization and we, we, we're working... As, in as many places as we can, and we have to say no a lot just because we don't have um, enough you know, dogs, enough people, enough funds. 
Yeah, yeah, and but we, you know, we find that there are amazing um, things that, like, one dog in Zambia, in less than a year, has taken you know seventeen guns out of circulation and found um, tusks of ivory and bushmeat, and you know it's you know it's shutting down the trade in places where it can have a huge impact. So, in other words, folks, we have a tool here that is novel, but not so novel. It's accepted. We need to help support organizations like Working Dogs for Conservation because it will make, as Megan just said, it puts a big dent in when you look at the large picture of what is happening to wildlife and environments and disease transmission and everything all over the world. These dogs are mobile. The teams are incredible. As you just heard, the relationships are amazing. So please, help. Consider giving a gift to Working Dogs for Conservation. Once again, wd4c.org. Donate through Amazon. Choose your charity. Donate through iGive. Or just donate through their Donate button. If you love a dog and you like to see working dogs and you love wildlife and our earth, this is a way you can make a difference. So, Megan and Pete, I thank you so much for your time. Well, Ellie, thank you for, for having us. And, you know, one other thing everybody needs to do is, is to follow your example. And you're such a node in the conservation community, and you connect so many of us. And so thank you for, for having us and, and for doing everything through Wild Eyes and the podcast and, and everything. We're really grateful. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. So you heard it, folks. It's not just me tooting my own horn. We're doing a lot of good out here, and you're part of the picture. So every day... We can each do just one thing to make a difference. So I'm going to leave you on that note. Thank you. This is Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 